It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm LJ Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And we are continuing the conversation on immigration and the myriad of issues in that conversation, because it's not just one. And joining me at the front of the class, which I'm very excited for the discussion, because I feel like, you know, we could probably nerd out and be here for two hours, but you know, we got a short defined amount of time. But joining us at the front of the class is the founder and executive director of African Communities Together. That is, wait, I practice this and I always do this to myself that I over practice and then end up mispronouncing it. But it's did I did I do it right? It, it's it's Omaha. It's just it's it's, Omaha. it's it's just like it looks. Yeah. Okay. Can I tell you that this happens to me every single time that I like practice like for like 30 minutes leading up to the conversation, you know, people from the continent, from Caribbean. And it's like my brain is telling me exactly it just exactly how it's laid out on the screen is how you pronounce it. And then what happens is Eljoy just like, no, English, which means you need to bastardize said vowels that you know. It's all good. We're, we're all, we're all, we're all learning and exploring together. So. Yes, but Amaha Casa, thank you very much for that and that grace. But I am of envy of your career in 25 years of organizing, social entrepreneur, nonprofit director, labor organizer. You've also been in California as well as I was spent some time in California as well, particularly in Oakland. And I am thankful for you making time to join us at the front of the class to continue this conversation on immigration. So thank you so much for making the time. I appreciate the opportunity. Look forward to it. So I'm going to start where we always start, which is by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Well, I was trying to think if I, if there's anything that I did when I was a, you know, like a kid or, uh, um, or, or, you know, or in high school and I couldn't come up with anything. I think I, um, so maybe I, I, in college, I might've gone to a protest at the state house or something. Um, but the, probably one of the first experiences that I remember is, um, I got my start in organizing, doing, uh, labor union organizing, and I was working with public sector workers. Uh, and um, so people who worked at the county hospital and, and um, um, you know, the county uh, social service agencies. And I remember being involved in budget advocacy uh, for the first time at the county level and, you know, organizing workers to sort of put on their union T-shirt and go testify um, at, um, at what, these otherwise very sleepy um, county uh, council meetings um, and, you know, talk about why we needed uh, adequate staffing and uh, better working conditions. So that's, I think, the one that really uh, uh, stands out to me in my memory as kind of my first engagement with government. I, I love that story, partly because, you know, everybody that comes to the show, like they have like the story of like, I was class president in second grade. <laughs> like that, But to start from 
labor organizing, and I'll have to have you back when I do the show and talking about accountability within the organizing space, because, you know, I always leading a NAACP branch. I talk about this all the time that there are members I am now I am accountable to. And I feel that's similar in terms of the labor organizing space Mm -hmm. is that you have people that you are accountable to. So it's only so far you can go, you know, off on your own before people will pull you, you know, by your skirt, by your coattails and be like, "Mm -mm, no, Mm -hmm. that ain't what that ain't that ain't what the the community wanted. (laughs) And and you are not either. So thank you very much. I feel like it's a different level of accountability. That's real. Versus, Mm -hmm. you know, you as an individual starting something or even in the church space, different from you founding a church and being hired by a church, like mm-hmm. two different accountabilities in, in that standpoint. So I have to have you back to talk about, <laughs> to that's talk a, that's about a, that. That's also a really rich conversation. So yes. Yeah. So I, I wanted to just go in the deep end in this conversation because I've been trying to set the stage for folks not in the middle of a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying that in that while there may be a few headlines here and there about something happening at the southern border, there is not a national push in a national media conversation about our immigration crisis right now. And I want I, I deliberately didn't want to have this conversation in that heated moment and wanted to gather in this space and really talk about the various issues as it pertains to immigration, whether that's, you know, how someone enters this country, how someone becomes a citizen, what it does to our economy, like all of those kinds of things. But one of the other things that I think is often missed is that particularly from an American standpoint, is that immigration is solely focused on who's coming in from the southern border. And not that we, because we're a country of immigrants, right, that there are people that come from all over the world and that have different experiences as it pertains to immigration. So I wanted to, you know, sort of give you the floor to sort of talk about that. I assume it can, it is oftentimes a frustration, but wanted to, you know, leave it to you to sort of educate us about that fact. Yeah, I think you've put your put your finger on a really key issue um, in general for for uh, for the U.S. immigration system. Um, you, you know, from my experience as an you know an attorney who studies immigrant who studied immigration law, and then um, as somebody who's been working with um, predominantly African immigrants um, for the last several years since I, I founded my organization, African Communities Together. Um, there's sort of what makes the headlines, as you're saying, about immigration. And then there's kind of the day-to-day realities of the immigration system. And often there's a lot of sort of space or distance between those things. Um, you know, when immigration in the, is in the headlines, it is, as you say, often because there's a, you know, quote unquote, caravan or surge at the southern border. Um, you know, there's pushback from governors and, you know, uh, other f- others from border states and then, you know, the federal government responding to that. Um, and, you know, the southern border is very important. And um, the stories of who's coming in from the southern border um, often are very focused on Central Americans and uh, other, you know, Latino community members, and don't always portray the the stories of um, 
people seeking asylum from Haiti, from um, from uh, African countries, including uh, Eritrea, Cameroon, a uh, number of other uh, African countries. Um, so we do want to lift up the struggles of our communities at the border and, and talk about um, how do we um, uh, open our arms to people who are seeking asylum in the, to, uh, at the southern border and who may be coming from Africa or the Caribbean in the same way that we're maybe opening our arms to Ukrainians um, who are, you know, uh, being resettled um, in the U.S. Um, the Biden administration, after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, pledged to admit an additional 100,000 Ukrainians. Um, so we do, that is an important uh, immigration issue, a port, important uh, black issue um, um, uh, for us to be focused on. But it is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to immigration. Um, most people who come here, uh, who, who are uh, enter the U.S. as, as immigrants, um, whether from Africa or from other continents, other parts of the world, enter legally. Uh, and most of them come through a family relation, um, even for African uh, immigrants who are much less likely um, to be able to enter through an African, uh, through a family visa. Um, that is still the number one way that most people migrate. And that's true for, you know, migrants from Asia or Latin America or other parts of the world. Um, this, the, a lot of other people who come, uh, come through other legal migration programs, um, one that we are always trying to bring attention to because it's been so important for black migration to the U.S. is a program called the Diversity Visa Program, um, sometimes referred to as the Diversity Visa Lottery or, or you know, um, mis, miscalled the, um, the Green Card Lottery. Um, but basically, this is a program for uh, countries that have had historically very, um, or at least in recent history, I should say, uh, had very low levels of migration to the U.S. Um, of course, we know that Black immigrants were among the first um, migrants to, um, you know, to North America, to the United States before it was even the United States, um, through the transatlantic slave trade as enslaved uh, African laborers. Um, but then there was a long uh, gap in our history where you were continuing to see migration from the Caribbean and uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants. You know, you see that really woven through the history of the Black diaspora in the U.S. You know, people like, um, you know, Professor Du Bois, um, you know, um, Harry Belafonte, even uh, Malcolm X, uh, Lonnie Guineer, um, often having, um, uh, you know, close family members. Uh, from uh, from the Caribbean, but due to a number of reasons, including U.S. foreign policy, U.S. immigration policy, and outright colonialism on the African continent, um, there was a long break in uh, legal migration between the end of this of the uh, um, transatlantic slave trade and um, decolonization um, on the African continent, which coincided with some big changes uh, in U.S. immigration policy um, in the 60s, in the mid-60s, um, during the Kennedy administration. Um, so that's when you start to see legal migration start to emerge. And then in the 80s, we get this diversity visa program, which says, okay, if you have low levels of migration, um, then you get to essentially enter 
a lottery, which gives you the chance. It doesn't give you a green card. It gives you a chance to apply for a green card. It's just like if people have experience with housing lotteries, um, it doesn't mean you're getting a free apartment. Um, it means um, you know, you're getting a chance to move to the top of this wait list or get on this wait list. Um, and after a couple of years of vetting and background checking and whatnot, um, mm -hmm. you, you, um, you're able to be admitted into the country. And that program admits 55,000 legal migrants to the U.S. Um, every year. Um, and uh, about 40% of those historically have been from Africa. Every African continent, country on the continent um, qualifies for the diversity visa program, except for Nigeria, which because they have large migration through other channels. Um, so most people come through family. A lot of people come through these programs like diversity visa. Um, of course, people are aware of refugee resettlement. And that's always, uh, you know, a very political, a hot button issue, um, you know, so, um, you know, at the tail end of the Obama administration, we resettled about 100,000 refugees every year. Um, Trump throttled that program down to about 15,000 uh, resettled refugees every year. Um, Biden administration has proposed to crank that back up to about 125,000 uh, per year, and that's not counting uh, Ukrainian resettlement. But um, some countries have had large numbers uh, of people resettled um, as refugees um, through the refugee resettlement program. Countries like um, Liberia, Somalia, um, a couple of other African uh, countries have had large migration through that. Um, so that's how, uh, that's kind of how people get here. And so as you, I think it's right to point out that the border is in many ways the tip of the iceberg and is not how the vast majority of immigrants, especially black immigrants, um, enter the U.S. You know, when we were talking to Congresswoman Sanchez about this, who is leading, among a few others, on comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level, she highlighted a number of these, you know, facts in terms of how people get here, because we believe, because if you follow television, right, that that's what happens. Like drug dealers come over there from the southern border, terrorists come from there, like everybody come mm -hmm. <laughs> from mm -hmm. the southern border, mm -hmm. not via planes, you know, in, in, in other standpoint. And I, as I'm, you know, asked her about also you know, these economic programs where you have actual corporations also bringing people For over sure. to fill in jobs that they say they are unable to find people here in the United States, usually a lot of tech related, high level tech related jobs as well. But I think that context is important because I don't remember, and obviously it could be because I was young, a lot of conversation about immigration being a problem when I was, you know, middle school, high school, then, you know, reading the news, right? There was, it seemed to be a certain level of immigrant, you know, immigrants that we allowed in this country for economic purposes, for family related purposes and things of that nature. But I feel like we are being conditioned from certain political actors that immigration is a problem. Whereas I, I guess, you know, was, you know, raised and developing that the country in which we live in thrives off of this regular cycle of immigrants into the country, 
Can you talk a bit about that political change and, you know, the impact that that has had on our conversation about immigration? For sure. I think it's 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 very well taken. I mean, the country has unfortunately had a made a hard turn uh, towards nativism, um, towards uh, xenophobia, towards um, scapegoating and targeting of immigrants. Um, and um it's not unique in U.S. history, certainly, right? Like, um, right. you know, we, we've had periods of where, you know, the country kind of collectively, um, and by the country, I'm really talking about sort of a, a relatively small white elite, um, has lost its mind um, around um, uh, the, you know, quote unquote threat of, of, of immigrants um, to uh, sort of jobs or, or um the culture and society um, and politics. And what I would, I do argue sometimes though with people who say that, who refer to what um, is happening as uh, people being sincerely interested in immigration restriction and zero net immigration. The people who are really, really after zero net immigration um, are a pretty small sliver of the farthest uh, farthest right. Um, even Trump, as uh, horrendously as he scapegoated and vilified and targeted immigrant communities, um, never actually pursued policies that would basically shut down uh, immigration um, or un un undocumented. He certainly throttled, sought to throttle legal migration um, through programs like the Refugee Resettlement Program or the or the diversity visa. Um, but, you know, Trump was just as dependent on undocumented immigrant laborers at places like Mar-a-Lago um, as any other, you know, sort of captain of industry. And I think um, people know that America would grind to a halt um, without uh, without immigrant labor um, for the most part, and would have to look at things like major increases in wages and you know uh, sort of uh, big changes to the economy. Um, so what I argue is that we you know and, and if if they wanted to pursue that, you could effectively make it illegal for people to work without work authorization, um, but that's never been the goal. Um, what I would argue the goal is, is to have a permanent underclass of people who are denied access to citizenship, so they can't vote, um, they can't redress their, their grievances politically, um, they don't threaten uh, kind of a white European majority, um, and who don't, um, and who are relatively exploitable at work. Um, so it's harder for them to assert their rights at work, um, you know, to organize a union. We're in the midst of like a wave of unionization across the country right now, including from, you know, historically low wage uh, service and uh, service retail food workers um, who haven't, you know, really organized in decades, um, uh, if not centuries. <laughs> um, uh, and so I think that that is the real goal is to have an exploitable and disposable um, kind of underclass. And that's why I think it's so important for immigrant and native born folks to say, you know, yes, we support people's ability to move to, uh, to both stay at home and to move to thrive where they are and to have rights irrespective of their immigration status. Um, because if not, then it makes us all kind of more easily exploited. Um, and this trends that we've had of 
power being incredibly concentrated uh, and wealth being incredibly concentrated with small elite, um, it just accelerates uh, some of those trends. So, so for me, I think it's 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 really about um, uh, you know that uh, political economy that says yes, we are have you know it is convenient to blame people you know blame immigrants um whether from latin america whether from africa you know we still remember you know the trump campaign flying to minnesota in on the eve of the election and blaming somalis in minnesota um we still remember the asshole countries slur um that was used around places like haiti and and nigeria um but really the goal has never been um exclusion of migrant uh, immigrants as laborers. It's been the exclusion from full rights of citizenship. And that's, again, a pattern that goes back to, um, um, you know, to the to, to the institution of slavery um, and, you know, people being counted as three fifths of a of a of a, um, of a person and um, not having the right, you know, whether it's in slavery or subsequently in share, sharecropping um, to say no to working conditions. Yeah. You know, this goes back to I, I have this theory that, you know, I don't classify as a conspiracy theory because I don't think it's a, con you know, like I think it's like very upfront and apparent is like the country was created for wealthy identified people and the country continues to try to go back to that rather than continuing to expand beyond its founding. And as you know, as someone who founded an organization, you always want what you founded, what you birthed to exceed what your wildest dreams could be. Whereas America as an institution is like, nah, we gonna, we just, we just gonna keep going back. <laughs> like back, 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 back mm -hmm. to how we created this before. And so if you have, yes, larger population, but they have, as you mentioned, less power, less political power, less economic power, the power to control their own bodies and their own mm -hmm. destinies, mm -hmm. right? And you then have a dwindling population who is dwindling in numbers being able to control that way. And so I always think and in, in, in frame it in that context that it, it keeps trying to go back. That's why you hear the language. We need to go back to our values. We need to go back to, you know, like it's, it's all there. Mm -hmm. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just very, really, it's happening before our eyes. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. All the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back when to Sunday Civic. Children. I want to ask this next question, which is something that not only a question that I have, but a number of people, when I talked about, it, I was going to do this series, you know, I got emails and texts of questions to ask during the series. And one of the things is that when the organizing or the immigration bubbles up to the top, you know, of public discussion, as you mentioned, our Latino brothers and sisters are front and center, being able to visualize and prioritize their, their lives, what they're running from, you know, if they are running for something and, you know, what their families are dealing with. 
And it's very difficult to sort of present that or to see that same thing in terms of African families and immigrants. You know, we know why the case, but, you know, I'd like for you to share, you know, what are some, you know, we know some baseline things of that all immigrant families experience and share and concerns that they have. But what are some things that are unique to African families, African immigrant families that they're experiencing that is not front and center that we don't get the 2020 specials on, Mm -hmm. you know, about what these families are experiencing? Yeah. Well, first, I want to just I I just want to lift up what you're saying about the sort of disappearance or invisibility of um, black immigrant, black migrant, um, immigrant, African immigrant uh, experiences from even the perception and awareness of uh, of that this is an important category of of immigration. Um, And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think some of it is because in the kind of racial hierarchy and the racial, you know, caste system that we have in the United States, um, certain groups like uh, Latinos and Asian Americans are sort of seen as perpetually foreigners, right? Like they could be here, you know, five, six, seven generations, uh, and people would still, you know, be like, where are you from, right? Um, and and that's something that you know Asian American and Latino folks uh, you know talk about as as the their experience. Whereas with Black folks, um, there is an erasure of the diversity of the diaspora. Um, whether that diversity is where people is is historic, you know, in terms of where people migrated from um, or were enslaved and kidnapped from um, in the you know on the African continent, um, uh, where you know the sort of uh, uh, internal diversity um, that has always existed within the diaspora, you know, whether you're looking at like regional culture and cuisine, you know, uh, cultures and cuisines and you know folkways, or whether you're talking about like a later migration that's come from the Caribbean. So there's, um, you know, it's sort of like in American racial ideology, black folks have to be from nowhere. Um, uh, and so um, that is something that, you know, is, 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 is kind of an idea that's created around, you know, multi-generational African-Americans, you know, descendants of enslaved Africans, but then pretty quickly <laughs> rubs off and onto black migrants, right? So so unless you obviously speak with an accent or obviously, you know, sort of wearing clothes that, that mark you as being from somewhere else, um, you know, you tend to be just kind of, you know, being seen as just sort of regular black and, and, and sort of whatever diversity or ancestry you bring is just kind of eliminated. Um, but what part of what's happened and, and, and it you know again migration has been relatively small from some places like um the the you know africa until fairly recently but it's growing incredibly quickly there was this recent um research that came out of um the pew um center where they found that one in ten uh black folks in america is uh is an immigrant um and then one in five is either an immigrant or has an immigrant parent. Um, So that's a pretty astonishing um, sort of figure. And then another figure that says, if you look at the growth um, of black population in America, 20% of that growth is accounted for by immigration. Um, So, you know, and in places like New York, um, you know, Miami, Minnesota, a few other places, you're you're seeing like 25, 30, 40% 
uh, of black folks in those communities uh, being immigrants or children of immigrants. So, um, so I would say that that what the phenomenon you're describing of kind of erasure and invisibility of black migrant experiences, it's still a reality. And anyone who works with uh, the communities that, that we work with can share that. Um, but it's starting to be challenged and pushed back, um, partly based on just, just growth and development. And then, you know, you start to see a few, you start to have a few celebrities starting to break through and become more, you know, more famous and more visible um, in, you know, entertainment or sports or, or, um, or government. And, you know, with, of course, you know, Barack Obama's um, migration story or his father's migration story being part of that uh, narrative. Um, but I would say in terms of your question about like, what's unique, um, there are certainly some, I mean, we talked, you mentioned employment-based um, immigration, and I think compared to um, other uh, uh, countries of origin, you know, particularly China and India, which tend to have a lot of this, you know, quote-unquote high-skilled or high, you know, high-tech employment, um, uh, Africans are extraordinarily unlikely um, to be, um, uh, to migrate using um, uh, employment-based visas. Um, and so some of that may be, you know, those countries may have a higher, you know, so, you know, countries like China or India have a larger, you know, tech class or whatever. Um, but African immigrants on average are actually among the most educated um, of immigrant groups. Um, uh, when you look at, you know, what percentage of African immigrants have a um, college degree or some college, it tends to, ex you know, excel, you know, exceed not only um, a lot of other immigrant groups, but many native-born groups. Um, so that is, I think, um, so So what's going on, some of it has to be accounted for by employment discrimination and by people seeing as degrees as from African colleges as not real, um, you know, sort of employers disfavoring it. That's why, you know, we fought for things like the diversity visa, which don't require a tech company to say, yeah, we're going to we're going to give you a, a visa and a fast track to get a green card um, through your employment. So I think that's that's a distinctive experience. But then I think the perhaps the most um, uh, and there are some nuances in terms of what programs people have taken advantage of or, you know, sort of challenges uh, in the asylum system with sort of seeking uh, humanitarian protection to remain in the country. Um, but again, one really significant um, uh, uh, difference um, for Black migrants is anti-Blackness and the fact that when, anti when Black immigrants um, integrate or... Um, are included in in U.S. society. We integrate into Black communities and Black uh, and uh, you know Black society, and you know so people, regardless of the color of their passport, uh, you know the color of their skin means that when they walk down um, the street in uh, you know in New York or Atlanta or um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, they are seen as black people, and so they experience, uh, you know, anti-black racism, police violence. Um, many of the and and they live in predominantly black communities because of residential segregation. So they they experience many of the things uh, um, that uh, multi generational African Americans um, have been experiencing for for centuries. Yeah, you know, following up on that because you mentioned integrating into regular black 
you know, like it's a distinction that people make. I mean, it's a distinction I've mm -hmm. used myself and people are like, mm -hmm. oh, where your family from? And I'm like, you know, the South. And they're like, oh, you're from. And I'm like, oh, I'm regular black. <laughs> like in, in the American context, how has that in terms of within the black community itself, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, you know, I, I grew up primarily in New York where, you know, you have, continental African, you know, community, you know, communities, mm -hmm. Caribbean communities that are within the larger black community. We understand some of the distinction different, but it's also been absorbed into mm -hmm. our regular black culture. Right. right? right. <laughs> you know, so that everybody is regular black in terms of the regions and areas that you are. And I always find it fascinating when those issues in terms of immigration come up and you see folks that you went to school with, families that you go to church with and others, you know, talking about this experience and you see, you know, neighbors light bulbs going off and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're like an immigrant family, right? Like it, mm -hmm. because you have been absorbed, you know, into the larger black, you know, society in a community, in a region, in a state. Right. How, how does that impact also the conversation and also the likelihood, because I had this challenge with NAACP, mm -hmm. right, of NAACP national sort of being, you know, part of the immigration conversation primarily for, you know, our, you know, right. Caribbean and continental right. African communities, right? Like we have a stake in this movement because of our neighbors, our friends and folks, and that although we've absorbed them into the larger regular black community, they still f face different policy, political and economic exploitation that, you know, we need to address. For sure. I mean, I think you hit on a couple of important points. I mean, one, I, I think as I referenced before, I think regular black is a little bit of, uh, you know, even if you set aside kind of more recent immigration stories, there's some erasure that happens of the diversity, mm -hmm. you know, like people came from places, right? And people went to, you know, some people, you know, um, you know, people came from different parts of the African continent. Um, some people, you know, migrated to, you know, some people were enslaved and trafficked rather to, you know, the Caribbean before they ever came to the U.S. So people have had journeys. Um, and I think sort of sometimes this, this kind of idea of, you know, African Americans and Black Americans as, you know, sort of people without history or people without origin is is a disservice, you know, to the to the Absolutely. diversity and complexity of the of the Black um, diaspora, the mosaic that is the Black diaspora in the U.S. Um, but, you know, recognizing that for people who are descendants of enslaved Africans who are multi-generational, who've been, been on this continent, um, that, 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 you know, people have, you know, fundamentally different experiences um, than people who are maybe, you know, were born on the African continent, um, who were born, you know, first generation, um, people who were born here to African, you know, to, to immigrant parents, second generation, or, you know, there's folks like me who I kind of identify as one and a half generation. I was born there. I didn't become a citizen. I was born in Ethiopia. I didn't become a citizen until much later in life. But I, you know, as you can kind of tell from my my accent and whatnot, I, you know, I spent most of, I was raised in, born, you know, raised and educated here in the U.S. And so 
um, my cultural framework is very much uh, is very much that. Um, so I do think there are kind of distinct experiences, including, you know, of course, the legacy of slavery, of course, the legacy of, of Jim Crow and, and segregation, um, you know, frankly, the effects of, of um, uh, you know, intergenerational poverty um, and, and those kinds of, um, you know, so both really rich assets and cultural, in, you know, and history and, and, and um, you know, a history um, you know, very proud history that people have created here in the U.S. And then, you know, very difficult legacies, um, which are different from the difficult legacies that folks come from um, who have migrated more recently, right, where it's about, you know, I mean, I remember bringing one of our Ghanaian American leaders, you know, talking about, you know, talking with a group of African American folks being like, you know, who are, who are like, well, you haven't experienced, you know, what we've experienced in terms of slavery. And she's like, no, we didn't, but we experienced colonialism. And let me tell you about colonialism. And when people started to actually compare notes, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, unsurprisingly, yeah. there's a lot, whole there's a lot, lot of, of <laughs> whole lot of similarities. It just happened, you know, where, where you happen to be experienced, physically experiencing right. said trauma. <laughs> exactly. Like, are you torn away from your land or is this, or are you in your land, but not, but, but sort of not uh, in possession of it, right? Which is the experience mm -hmm. of a lot of places, um, right? Even now. Um, so, um, so I think that those are all realities. Um, one thing I like to, to, to sort of push back on sometimes is, because um, I think folks like folks like you and me who are in these communities and see the diversity, um, you know, even, as, you know, especially like uh, in places like New York, right, where, where what constitutes kind of regular black or what, you know, black culture looks really different, right, uh, from other parts of the U.S. even, right? Like, so, um, so you know, you go to a soul food buffet in Oakland where I, you know, I lived for, for about 15 years, you're not going to see jerk chicken on the soul food buffet menu. That's not considered soul food, you know, um, you know, in Oakland where people, um, you know, migrated largely from Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, um, uh, you know, during World War II. And that's, that's, and, you know, came to work in, you know, the shipyards in Oakland and Richmond and places like that. Um, um, so I think that there, you know, that diversity again has always existed. Um, and then the, the, the last thing that I, I think is helpful for me in thinking about this is, um, if you think about the discourse of tribalism and the idea of tribalism, right? Like this is something that's been used against Africans and, and uh, you know, uh, black people for a long time, right? This idea of like, those people can't get along, right? Um, yeah. I, you know, I remember... I remember being a teenager, like I'm going to age myself here, date myself here, but I was a teenager before um, apartheid fell uh, in South Africa. And I remember talking to a Dutch person, you know, and Dutch people have all kinds of, you know, connections to apartheid South Africa, um, you know, and then being like, well, you know, if they get rid of apartheid, those, they're all just going to kill each other, right? They can't get along because of tribalism, right? Um, and I see a lot of parallels between that kind of story um, about tribe um, and how it gets applied to um, Africans and multi-generational African immigrants and Afro-Caribbeans and other parts of the Black diaspora in the U.S. today. There's a story that like, oh, they don't get along, you know, they're like, you know, the, the you know, they, you know, the, the, the African-Americans call the Africans these kinds of slurs. And then these, you know, the others call this kind of slur. And there's a reality there. And that's a, you know, that's a thing that happens. And, you know, I mean, in grade school, you know, 
playgrounds. People say all kinds of mean things about each other for whatever reason. Um, uh, but as with other tribes, part of the story of tribes is like, yeah, people go to war with each other, but they also trade with each other. Um, they, um, you know, do engage in commerce with each other. Um, they marry each other. Um, you know, they, their cultures rub off on each other. Part, that's always been part of the story of kind of tribe or clan or ethnicity or whatever within Africa. And I think that's always been part of the story about, you know, uh, diversity within the Black diaspora here in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's a really important context. And, and you're right, having gone from New York to California, which was a huge culture shock for a 12-year-old to go through, to go from, you know, the diversity that is New York City to you know, I didn't have the pleasure of doing like, you know, Oakland or, you know, other words that had great. I was like in Barstow. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, how Barstow and Victorville, right? Mm. So I was like, oh, this is not at all any yeah. of <laughs> any of what I would like at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so to understand the diversity in that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civic. So, you know, lastly, because I always like to leave people with some action, some homework, with some things that they should do. You know, obviously there are very, a handful in looking to identify organizations to talk to about this conversation. It was a little difficult in terms of finding groups. And, you know, part of the other thing here in Brooklyn, even when I ask folks who are organizing, there is a level of vulnerability in terms of people not wanting to put their stories on display, communities not wanting to, you know, sort of highlight or basically put a bullseye on their community that, you know, they are other. And so there, there is that, right? But what do you think, and, you know, because we have a national reach, what are some things that those who are, you know, in local elected office could do? What are some organizations where immigration is not their primary organizing issue, mm -hmm. but in terms of being accomplices and in partnership with groups in your community, what are some things that you think people should seek out and try to do? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I think um, so I think there are some some really dynamic, um, both emerging and established organizations working with black migrants around the country. Right. So you've got um, there's you know, there's us, there's the Undocu Black Network, there's uh, um, Black Alliance for Just Immigration, Haitian Bridge Alliance. It's been doing tremendous work, um, particularly at the southern border of the U.S. Um, there's groups like uh, Abisa in in um, in Michigan. Um, so there are great organizations, and if you're doing local advocacy, um, then asking and looking for those organizations um, is an important thing that you can do. Um, and as you say, it's not, you know, it's like we are all whole human beings, right? We don't, 
you know, go about and live in a box because we're native born or we're immigrant, right? You know, we are, are all trying to, you know, get a job, you know, uh, earn some money, you know, take care of the people that we care about, find some housing that isn't going to, you know, make me make us, you know, spend our whole paycheck every, you know, get decent health care, you know, send our kids to school um, so folks can do better, you know, so one generation can do better than the next. Those are all kind of common aspirations. And the more that we can ally around those common aspirations and experiences, um, I think that that's a huge part of it. I, and, and I think that, you know, there are the big picture federal immigration fights, but um, much of the work of um, of inclusion and welcoming happens at the local and state level, right? Um, states can't set immigration policies. Your city can't set immigration policies, but they can do a whole lot of things that make like either either easier or harder um, for for immigrants and migrants and and for Black immigrants and migrants, immigrants and migrants from from Africa and the Caribbean, I think just asking even some questions around like, that's terrific that we are translating this document into Spanish um, or into, you know, Cantonese um, for Asian and Latino populations. Um, but are we translating it even into French and Arabic? Um, that's a fight that we've been in the middle of. And, and even not, you know, setting to, to one side, you know, African languages, um, but even just French and Arabic, which are widely spoken on the African continent, you know, are we making services or, you know, voting and civic engagement? Are we making things accessible to our African um, and Black immigrant neighbors? Uh, those are things that we can do. And then um, I think also just resisting some of the narratives that would seek to pit us together, pit us against each other and saying the that the diaspora has always been a beautiful and complex mosaic, um, and that's only growing uh, with time. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, we can um, work together, live together, struggle together. We don't need to buy into this single story of tribalism. Um, we can um, actually um, build a kind of beautiful um, and intersectional, intersectional movement um, for liberation here in the U.S. and worldwide. And I think that, that just holding on to that um, and bringing that energy uh, to all the spaces where you are in your civic life uh, goes a long way. Thank you so very much. And, uh, you know, I was right in the beginning. We could go down lots of different rabbit holes from our <laughs> from our conversation. I'm definitely bringing you back for that accountability conversation sure. because I think that's really important as, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but, you know, over the past couple of summers where you saw more people out in the streets and engage, there is the waning, right, of people who put all of their eggs in the electoral basket. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you were to talk to, you know, Older organizers, we would have told you, don't right. do that, right. <laughs> you right. know, and that this is a long game and yep. not a, and an immediate, yeah. <laughs> right. So, but that accountability space, which we see a lot happen on social media where people are demanding that and understanding how we put a move, you know, push forward a movement. So I look forward to you coming back and having that conversation as can't well. Wait. And anything else you want to talk about? For sure. Can't wait. All right. Thank you so very much for joining us. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. 